Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today, I am talking with Matthias Giraud and Chase Ogden about their excellent brand new film that was nearly 14 years in the making called Super Frenchie. Now, many of you are familiar with Matthias's Super Frenchie exploits as a skier, base jumper, and ski base jumper, and this film documents his trajectory in these areas while also laying out quite specifically his philosophy of life that drives his decisions to do things like ski base off the Matterhorn. I really loved this film, and I also really enjoyed talking to Matthias and Chase about it, and I think that you all are going to really enjoy this conversation too. To check out where the film is playing, go to superfrenchymovie.com, and while you do that, you can go ahead and listen to our conversation about the film right now. And so, here we go. Well, I am very happy to be joined now by Matthias and Chase. This is going to be a fun conversation. I I mentioned to you guys that I watch a lot of films in, I guess, what we would call the sort of action sports genre. And this one has really stood out for me for a number of reasons that I think we're going to get into here. First of all, let's just make sure people know where you both are at the moment. Matthias... How are you doing and where are you currently? Doing very well, thank you. I am currently in Bend, Oregon. And how did you get to Bend? Uh, I heard the beer flow like wine here, so I just shut up. (laughs) (laughs) That's the best answer I think I've ever heard. And and really not wrong. (laughs) Yeah. Really not wrong. No, Bend is one of those places, like one of these little pockets and island of cool of cool stuff to do all the time. You know, it's it's I miss the Alps, I miss the big mountains, I miss, you know, I'm I'm obviously French, if in case you didn't hear the accent. Uh, but um I Ben, the way I always explain it is we don't have an A plus in anything here, but we have a B plus in everything. So your quality of life is is amazing here. So that's Ben. <laughs> I think we should uh, maybe submit that to like Bend Tourism. <laughs> that could be the billboard <laughs> that you see coming into town. Matthias is the face of Bend. I love it. We we might not be an A plus in anything, but we're a B plus <laughs> at everything. I like it. That's hilarious. Marketing 101 right there. And Chase, how about you? Where are you joining us from today? I'm in Spokane, Washington. Okay, got it. And this is something that, you know, it it doesn't come up in the film that we're going to be talking about today. But when did you two first get connected? So I'll, I'll tackle that one. So in 2008, early 2008, I was running an outdoor sporting show for a local affiliate in, in town. And it was magazine format. So we would do multiple three to five minute long segments per episode, half hour show, um, just focused on the outdoors and people loving the outdoors and, and their different activities. And Matias had just done his first ski base jump off of Mount Hood. And my partner and I were like, dude, this is the perfect story for our show. Like, let's let's interview him and, and get to the heart of this. And interestingly enough, like when we first did the interview and I was looking at the footage and I was like, oh, my gosh, like 
there's a much bigger story happening here than a lot of the stories that we have been telling. And I think Matias's career is going to grow. I think he's going to do great things. So I decided to cut that piece of the episode as essentially a trailer for a bigger film. And so it took a while, but eventually that trailer, which I made almost, gosh, was that like 14 years ago almost, finally turned into this movie. And, and it's not at all like what we expected, but from the very beginning, like immediately after we first met, we're thinking about this movie and finally we're here and it's done. That's wild. So literally the origins of Super Frenchie, which we're talking Tuesday, June 1st, this film drops on the 4th, mm-hmm. right? Just yep. in a few days. This has been in the works in some form or another since 2008? Yeah, I'm glad you specify in some form or another. You know, there, there are pauses in between and things like that. But yeah, like the idea started with a two-minute trailer cut from my TV show back in 08. Yep. This is a remarkable film. And for anybody who wants to just show up for kind of the adrenaline junkie elements, well, we got that in spades. You know, thanks, Matthias, for, uh, you know, for that. <laughs> and by the way, I will say, I got more scared watching this film than I think I have been afraid at any moment in any film, maybe in the last 10 years. And we won't go into it right now, but and it was actually the Matterhorn jump. Oh, yeah. Anyway, one of the things, though, that is so interesting and really sets this film apart again in addition to some incredible base jumping footage ski basing skiing is the thoughtfulness that goes in in terms of explaining this life of yours matthias and i was really curious like and i asked chase before we started recording like how much of this was chase driving the film in this direction versus how much of this just really felt natural and truly a part of your own approach to these different things that you do, Matthias. And I'd love to hear you answer that question. Well, jumping off a cliff or skiing down a steep mountain might seem like a a careless act to some people, but for me, it is the opposite. It's, it's, uh, it's a result of thorough introspection, existential desires, really being on that quest for, for fulfillment and, and, and maximizing your life. But it, it's not something to be taken lightly. I, I'm actually, I, I'm the kind of person who overthinks and overexplains everything. And so for me to do this, there's an incredible thought process and preparation that comes into to play to do this you know and I remember being a child in the Alps you know and skiing being four or five years old and hearing the story of Jean-Marc Boivin and Patrick Valençon and Bruno Gouvy and, and Sylvain Sedan you know skiing things that we thought were impossible to ski off and then paragliding off the summit of Everest and so these guys are just setting the bar right but it's not like you grow up and you're thinking oh one day I'll be on I'm not saying that I'm on the level of these guys, but it's not like you think that somebody, oh, I'll be at, at their level. I'm going to do this stuff. It's not like it's, it is it is what it is because they set the bar. That's the reference, right? But at the same time, you, as a child, you're, you're really um, impressed and almost, uh, I don't know, you, 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 it's not like you're empowered by what they're doing. You, you, it almost gives you a, an own sense of your own mortality and, 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 
you know, and, and your fibrility and fragility as a human. But as you go through the steps, uh, the foundational steps of learning to ski and mastering one discipline and then learning another discipline, and then all of a sudden you realize that you, you're not necessarily a master at everything. You, you know, you master like two or three disciplines in the mountains, but you become this well-versed mountain person. And so it totally makes sense to, you know, you'd start jumping off a 10 foot cliff and then the next thing you know, you're jumping off a 50, 60 foot cliff. And then the cliffs become so big, they're like, well, I have to add a parachute. But then it's also not just to ski. You also realize that the fourth dimension in the mountains comes with combining rock, snow, ice, and air. And this is where, for me, you tap into the, the full expansion of what it means to be a mountain man. One of the things that I really kept wondering about through this film, because there are a number of kind of philosophical statements, explanations. There's a famous work in philosophy by John Henry Newman. And the title of this work is, it's um, Apologia Pro Vita Sua, or, or A Defense of My Life, and you know, an apology for my life. And I'm like, this could have been an alternative title for this film. You went with Super Frenchie. Probably not a bad choice, but if it was called like Apologia Pro Vita Sua, I was like, yep, that actually would completely fit. It's just, we don't normally necessarily tend to think of that if we're watching like extreme sports stuff, right? And so I, I wondered for you, how much, how much exposure to sort of I don't know, classical philosophy or any philosophy, is this stuff that you yourself are reading or is it more like, I haven't read a ton of books, I just was watching people do things that I thought was amazing and I really admired these folks. And so it wasn't a bunch of book learning per se, it was just more a result of trying to figure out your own take on this existence of yours. I think it's both because, uh, you know, growing up in France, you, you're, you're immersed in existentialist ideas from an early age, right? You know, you, you reflect on things. Who are you? What are you doing? What is, what is your place? You know, and, and I, I remember realizing that I was in charge of my own life and therefore of my own death at four years old. That's the first time I actually, I was looking at the balcony of this house. My parents were renting in South of France. Everybody was enjoying melon and smoked ham at the table and not it wasn't a suicidal thought but it was a moment of of awareness where i was there at the edge and be like if i fall off this balcony i will die and then it's like but if i decide to jump off of this nobody can stop me my parents are there my sisters are there i'm the one in control therefore i control my life by controlling my own death and that's the first time i thought about it at four years old and after that, you just, I just, you know, just keep reflecting on this more and more. And when I was nine, you know, I saw a movie which we showcase in you know, a movie called Pushing the Limits. And it's the first time I saw a really grown man taking outrageous risks. And it was, the main character was played by Mark Twight. And, uh, and I was so impressed by this. I, right there, I signed a pact with myself saying, this, this is what I'm going to do with my life. I just have to pay my dues to be able to earn my spot within this group of people. And, and it totally made sense. But then, you study philosophy as well in your last year of high school. And our teacher sent us home with an amazing assignment. He was an indirect gift that he was giving us for for the the people that were not afraid of introspection and shadow work, I should say, you know. And he sent us home with one question to write a five-page essay. And that question was, 
uh, être soi-même a-t-il un sens, which means in English, does being yourself have a meaning? And right there, I knew that if I mess up this paper, I'm going to mess up my life. This is the, he's giving me the opportunity to write an outline of how to live a fulfilling existence and meaningful existence. But then also, I, I didn't really, you know, you read a lot of books in French, French school. It's very rigid and strict system. So I, I did it, but not out of pleasure, not out of, you know, out of duty because you have to do it to, to get a good grade, to be able to graduate and get kind of like that societal weight off your back. So you can, you know, you're born and you're in incarceration. And then eventually at 18 years old, you're free. You break out of jail and you can do what you want. That's the way I felt throughout my whole childhood. I didn't really enjoy childhood. I childhood was foundational to prepare my adulthood and steer my life in the direction that I want. But now I do read a fair amount of books, you know, like Men's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl is a big one where he quotes Nietzsche. Uh, he who has a why to live for can bear almost anyhow. That was a very foundational quote that I heard, which was really interesting to have a Jewish psychiatrist sent to Auschwitz quote Nietzsche, who was, you know, whose philosophy was misused by the Nazis, of course. Um, but right now I am reading uh, L'Homme Révolté by Albert Camus, which is in English translated to The Rebel. And it's it's the only way to deal with an unfree world is to be so totally free that your own existence becomes an act of rebellion. And I think that, that's beautiful. You know, I, I pretty much live... Uh, I'm not a religious person. I despise the idea of God. And I think I live more a life of a metaphysical rebellion. <laughs> Wonderful answer. By the way, I have to also ask related slash unrelated question. Your son's name is Soren. After Soren Kierkegaard, the, 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 the father of existentialism, but which is really funny because my wife is an uh, English literature teacher and she's the one who found the name. Being French, you know, and I guess narrow-minded in my own culture, I, I I didn't know anything about Soren Kierkegaard. When you told me existentialism, I thought, you know, Jean-Paul Sartre, I thought of all these guys, right? But then she's like, oh, no, no, it's Soren Kierkegaard. Like, he has a lot of religious stuff because of, it was what was the stuff at his time, but he is considered the father of existentialism. And then I was going on a base jump with a friend and, you know, Joanne was pregnant and jump off the cliff and, and land and... And my buddy is like, hey, dude, uh, so you guys been thinking about the name? And I'm like, well, Joanne found the name Soren. And I think it's cool because I'm half Dutch as well. So I kind of wanted a Nordic name to reflect his Nordic origins as well. But I said, but I, I, I don't know. I'm not a, I don't necessarily see the, uh, truly the, there's existentialism in there, but it's, it's, it wasn't, he hadn't sealed the deal for me yet. And then my buddy was like, dude, Soren, it's brilliant. It's like soaring, like flying. I'm like, done. So that's how we pick the name because it reflects flying and existentialism, which it captures the essence of life right there. I love it. I love it. That makes me real happy. I was like, please tell me this is the name was taken at least in part after Soren Kierkegaard. We did spell it differently because Soren Kierkegaard has the slash through the O. We just put the, yeah. the double dot on it because it's an accent we have in French. It's never put on an O. It exists on an I or things like that. But because it's more of an accent we have in, 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 in French language, that's why we we opted for the for the Swedish spelling instead of the Danish spelling. So, Gotcha. Fair. Fair enough. By the way, I will say, and I think it's very relevant to your life and the film, and even though you just said, like, listen, I'm not a religious person, but one of my most favorite quotes from Kierkegaard is he said, without risk, 
without risk, there is no faith. And I think about that line all the time. And I suspect maybe if you haven't heard that line before, you'll probably think about this too, because it's not, it doesn't have to be taken just in the sense of religious faith. This can be faith in yourself, faith in your equipment, faith in the broadest possible sense. And I think about it all the time, actually. And I think if, if someone were to watch this film of yours with that line in the back of their mind, it's just going to lead to, I think, a whole very interesting examination, both of your own life and what you're up to, but also as we all try to figure out what we're about and why we do or don't do any number of things in our own individual lives too. Yeah. Well, and I think also, um, you know, you're bringing up the concept of faith, but also having faith in yourself, not necessarily a, a potential, you know, hypothetical higher being. Uh, but I, I, uh, I think in the end it's, it's, I think Jay's did a great job at, at, at you know, s- summarizing and showcasing and compiling the, just the, the key moments of this journey to show what it means to live intentionally. And I think that's, 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 that's the extrapolation of, of, of whatever faith you find, whatever is empowering you. So, yeah. So Chase, when or how early did you start to find like, okay, I'm not just capturing a bunch of like incredible, intense footage of a guy doing stuff that 99.999% 99.999% of the world wouldn't dream of doing? I'd say very early on. So on upon, upon its first inception, I think Matias and I were both thinking more like Warren Miller type stunt after stunt. And and then, you know, we, we took a little break while I went off to grad school to study film production. And then towards the end of getting my MFA, Matias called me up and was like, hey, you know, my career's growing. Let's Let's start working on the movie again. And at that time, I just had a different mentality on on what a documentary could be, especially in the action sports realm, where it's a lot of times it is just jumping off of stuff and kind of, you know, rah, rah, which is which has this place for sure. But to me, I was more interested in something deeper, something with a more meaningful story and something that could appeal to a broader audience. And so uh, and I think to Matias's credit, I think it, it really goes both ways as far as bringing that side of the film out is that you know, asking the right questions, but then getting the right answers uh, in terms of like helping uh, or making sure that we dig, dig deeper. And luckily, Matias is a deep individual. So he always had the right things to say. The movie couldn't be what it is if he didn't have things to say. Right. If, if it, I won't say the right things to say, because, you know, that's subjective. But at least he's he's got this um these things he's exploring and thinking about. And to me, that's really central to this film because it's not just jumping off of stuff. It's reflecting on what that means. The the bigger picture of identity and self-actualization and what it means to be a father and husband. And at the same time, somebody who pursues these kind of dangerous activities that are central to his being. And so pretty early on, I knew I wanted this to be as, as much, if not more so, about his story as a man uh, and his outlook on life than the jumps themselves. And, and the way I like to put it is like, there's Matthias Giroux, the man, and there's Super Frenchy, the athlete. And there he's one person, but kind of two sides of his personality. And 
in some ways people may see those as as conflicting with each other but i find them to be complementary of each other and that's kind of what the film is trying to get at is is a full picture of who he is and kind of not just the jumps themselves but the philosophy and preparation and and what goes into that reality yeah and i think that that's sometimes where it doesn't always feel that convincing or compelling like I get to talk to a lot of amazing athletes in a lot of different areas. And sometimes when really kind of pressed on the like, why do you do this? Not everybody has the same level. And that's fine, right? That's totally okay. But I don't think everybody has that same level or they haven't maybe interrogated the question to the same extent or to the same depth that I think we see in this film. Matthias, you have an interesting look on your face right now. No, it could be. I just think it's a hard thing to express, you know, and, and I, I do get that sometimes when I come back from a big jump, it's like, you know, it's always like, oh, what do you feel like? Or why do you do this? It was just like, here we go. It's like, we can write a book on this. It's like, where do you start? You know? And I think I have a cultural bias, obviously, because of my approach, uh, for, uh, because of, you know, where I come from, why I do things the way I do. Right. I think there's something cultural about this, but I think, I don't think it means, I think s- some athletes may be, perhaps they didn't ask themselves those questions or didn't have this introspection. Maybe they, it was just a pure desire and they followed that desire. But I think a lot of athletes actually do. I think they just haven't necessarily spent the time or given the tools to to translate what they feel and, and put that into words. And I always think when I land from a big jump that I, every time, man, I land and I'm like, wow, the real work starts now. Because after a jump, there's this whole phase of digestion, which while, you, while you're doing, you're, you're absorbing, you're feeling, but then you almost don't necessarily connect the dots because you, you're in that survival mode. You're, you're a primitive animal with a modern mind, you know, so you're doing. But then after that, you have that phase of digestion where you're linking all the dots, right? It's almost like you're Blue Monday in a way, you know, you kind of like digesting what, what all the crazy stuff that happened at that wild party, right? <laughs> And then, but after that, it's expressing it. So the real work starts when you land. Another thing I think is really interesting in this film is, again, talking with a number of athletes, all doing some pretty consequential stuff. Many times, the answers I get from athletes about how they assess risk or how they think about fear I will often hear the answer from people, by the time I've committed to, to this jump, you know, to this air, to this line, there, there is no fear. I have checked everything out. I've scoped everything out in such a way where I feel 100% confident. And this is not the answer that I heard you giving in this film, right? And, and, and sometimes I think, when somebody's saying like, oh no, I'm 100% comfortable, I don't go if I feel any hesitation or reservation, you repeatedly talk about in the film, like, I think all the objectives are in place, everything's checked out, I just have to now get past the fear, overcome the fear. No, and I think, well, you're touching on, on several things. I think there's a, there's a whole evolution of fear throughout the movie, because there's the naive approach at the beginning, and then maybe the, the struggle with fear in the middle, and then the acceptance of fear at the end. At first, you know, I do this interview on before jumping off Manhood at 24, and I talk about literally putting my fear on the side, 
which I kind of ignored my fear at that time, right? And then through the middle of my career, I I thought I was managing my fear, but what I did was just man manage my anxiety. But towards the end of the movie, no, I'm just fully welcoming it. You know, fear by the end of the movie has become my best friend. And that's what's happened, you know, and, and that's, that's the only, that's the only true road to transcendence. And if you look at the jumps through the movie, so you have the Iger, the Iger was a jump of growth, following into the footsteps of my heroes, Shane McConkie, JT Holmes, Jean Negevalet, all the guys that set the sport, right? The Matterhorn was, you know, in this, in this thirst to, to do something and prove yourself to maybe yourself or perhaps others, I don't know, but the Matterhorn is more like an ego jump, you know, I just kind of pushed myself into it, went for it, had a close call, you know, but then towards the end, you know, going to those very important consequential jumps in the Alps, uh, then this is when it was a true moment of acceptance. And I felt it, putting my foot up the mountain for hours or a couple of days before doing that one descent everything was just falling into place and that was the, the this beautiful cherished place of acceptance which means fully accepting the risk and that's the first step toward taking a risk constructively when you accept succeeding but you also fully accept failing and probably never coming back from this you know like the 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 absolute is 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 you have a taste for the absolute when you walk that line between the infinity and and nothingness right in between that's and that's the road to transcendence maybe it's a little too theoretical but that's really truly how i feel it when i or how i felt that evolution throughout the movie and and that influenced the approach on fear can you talk a little bit comparing these two attempts of this kind of last climactic jump i mean and by the way you guys, one of you already mentioned it, but like this film is really exploring issues in what it means to be a parent and to be a responsible parent and what it means to be in a loving relationship with a partner and what it means to be responsible to yourself. I mean, there, there's so much going on here, but you know, you, you do mention that you, you ignored some wind issues the first time around the second time around were there weather conditions or other elements that were like i don't love that but i'm going anyway what was different technically about the second time versus the first so the first jump um we climbed up conditions were perfect by the time i geared up and i was ready to go conditions had changed and the wind was picking up and it was a southern wind called the, the fun which uh which really creates a Un unstable climate is an environment and is unpredictable in the Alps. But I was so focused on the jump itself. And I felt it the whole climb, the whole climb, I was thinking of the exit itself, the point that I was going to jump off. I, I was picturing the exit and the execution over and over again, instead of paying attention to the general environments, right? I get to the top conditions are good. And I'm like, okay, cool. Awesome. I'm just going to go no matter what. And then we had a sign of these, you know, two birds that were flying by the cliff, you know, that was kind of like a little wind indicator. And my my wingman, my mountain partner in the Alps, Stefan, is very knowledgeable paraglider and said, this is not a good sign. It means that there's a thermal wind picking up down there. But I had so much tunnel vision. I was like, no, dude, I'm going to come in hot. 
my my relative wind is going to overpower that wind, which it could have, honestly, when I looked at it. But by the time I skied down, that wind picked up and I couldn't really feel it because of my relative wind. So I closed myself in uh, in, in this in this frame of execution and I lost that omnipresence about the environment. So the first time I was... As I was climbing that mountain, there was an 80% chance I was going to jump and a 20% chance I was going to turn around. The second time I went, it was like the mountains decide. I'm I'm putting myself in a situation where you give me the rules and you 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 tell me if I can do it or not. And there's a 50% chance I'm going to jump, a 50% chance I'm going to turn around. It was a way to avoid that tunnel vision. And so it was... It was a completely different mindset and execution. And the conditions were actually perfect, too, the second time when I went there. There's always some hazards you have to work with in the mountains, right? It's never white or black. It's always light gray or dark gray. And that's where, with experience, you kind of figure out what is acceptable and what is not. But if you're not okay with the, the, the frame of execution or the error margin, there's no point going. And I think this is what happened with that jump, which was really leading me to a place of acceptance because uh, that that I had this this cliff strike induced induced growth, you know. <laughs> cliff cliff strike induced growth. That is a that is a gnarly vehicle of growth for sure. It was man. I definitely yeah. left a few brain cells up there, but. I think a few, a few, a few others grew from it. I think. <laughs> I want to ask just a couple more questions. We've been talking about how this film wasn't just about the jumps, but I want to ask just a couple quick questions about the actual jumps. First, kind of basic question: We see you a lot, whether you're doing ski base jumps or just base jumping. You know that little but significant element of reaching behind your back to grab the chute, right? We see this over and over and over again, right? How simple or tricky is that move? So um, it's a super simple move, but depending on the environment or your stability or your position, it could become tricky. Uh, when you, um, on a regular base jump, if you don't have a firm, nicely packed, grippable pilot chute, people have missed their pool. And if you miss your pool on a high object, I've missed the pool only once on a skydive. It slipped out. So I went back and got it, but I had, you know, thousands of feet below. So I didn't freak out. On a base jump, you don't miss a pool. And and people that have missed pool, especially on low objects, you know, they, they definitely left a dent in the ground. So you want to make sure you, you don't miss your pool. On a ski base jump, very tricky because as you know, as a skier, you always have to stay forward to stay in control, right? So you, it's always hands forward, hands forward, hands forward. That's what you hear, right? But then by reaching back, that's going to throw you back a little bit. So you always kind of have to offset that balance by moving one arm forward a little bit. But that could also make you shift a little bit. So it's finding that right balance between. And that's that's why ski base jumping is really skiing to the max because You've exited the ground and you're still controlling your skis in the air as you're falling 100 or 200, 200 feet or 300 feet before your parachute opens. And, and so you have to really be aware of your stability while efficiently releasing your parachute because that's how you're going to survive the jump. But, so it's, it's really tricky. <laughs> it's, it's very simple though. It's not that complicated. It's just the execution has to be fine-tuned and it's a lot of muscle memory. And that's why I always say ski base jumping is more skiing than base jumping because you have to be an expert skier to be able to hold it together. 
The last question. If I had been with you on the Matterhorn that day, the in-run looked horrendous. Oh, it was horrible. <laughs> there was no snow. And I was like, he's not going to point the skis down the like wisp of snow that was mostly seemed like about, I don't know, 100 to 200 feet of just rock. No, I mean, there was a line. I mean, the way I, when I got on top, I was like, okay, this is really chaotic. It's funny, actually, because Simon Antomaton looked at me and he was my guide up there and he said, so is it good? And I'm like, yeah, it's good. He's like, is it good because you want it to be good or is it good? And I'm like, that's a good question. But I remember as I got dropped there, I was like, dude, there's so many hazards. But literally, the last thing I asked was, you're in Crested Butte, so you know the US Extreme, right? I did the US Extreme for several years in a row and I was like... It's just like the U.S. Extreme, man. Ski between the rocks and boost off. You've done that in comps. It's nothing different except that it's just the Matterhorn and there's a big, big cliff on the other side. And literally, I so I pointed it. It was great, but then it was the snow density on that takeoff. The snow was lighter because it was in the shade longer than the the snow. And there's never that much snow on the Matterhorn anyway. It was just enough, right? And I sunk in and then that put me level with the rocks. If I had been four inches to the left, it would have gone flawlessly. And then he ended up being, you know, a shit show and survival mission. But <laughs> it's okay. I'm still alive. <laughs> Can I just say, like, when I saw there's a GoPro pointed at his face in that moment, when I saw his face, because I saw that before the rest of the jump, I was obviously something went wrong. But just the look of sheer panic, it, to me, it might be the most thrilling moment of the whole film because you don't know what's happened, right? Like the later crash is is kind of a surprise but this one i was like what happened what went wrong here and and it, it's just oh my gosh you just see on matthias's face like the full realization of oh here it comes <laughs> and i i just think it's it's so glad it worked out but it's it's nuts that the angle on that shot is amazing that was kind of cool through uh chase going through the footage there was another jump that i did in france and it was a you know had a bad landing and tree but he was like as I was preparing, I had my, I had a chest cam, uh, a GoPro on my chest, and I, I couldn't hear when I, you know, I downloaded my footage, sent it to Chase, and as he was editing, probably with his headphones, he could actually hear my heartbeat through the camera. It was like, you know, and obviously that jump went a little wrong because I think most jumps, even if they're super technical, it's actually almost getting a Zen mode, and I'm sure the heartbeat is probably a lot lower, but it's probably almost like he could probably call that I was gonna crash on this jump because my heart was like. Yeah, it actually yeah. sped up as you got closer to going, which is normally not what I hear. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's wild. <laughs> oh, goodness. Sadly, I need to let you guys get going. Let me just end with this question for now. This has been a big project. Chase, I'd be curious to hear what are you thinking about or working on now? And then we'll ask Matthias the same question. Sure. So um, my next project is actually another parachute project, but of a totally different nature. It's about the first and only all African-American paratrooper unit, which was established in World War II. And what's so great is, um, or so interesting, I should say, is instead of being sent overseas because of you know the racism and segregation of the day, they were trained as smoke jumpers here in the Pacific Northwest, not far from where I grew up and live now. So I'm working on that. We had some kind of exciting things develop in the last couple of weeks even. And then I'm also working on a narrative short film. My, my two loves in film are documentary and horror. And so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm working on one of each right now. And I'm really excited about kind of the way they're developing. Wow. 
Very cool. And as I mentioned, yeah, that Matterhorn clip, that was my dose of horror film. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so thanks. Real life is definitely more frightening than anything I can put in a, in a narrative. <laughs> Matthias, how about you? Uh, I'm heading back to the Alps uh, June 10th. International travel is starting to rehappen again. Conditions are look like they are lining up. And so I'm, I'm going home to uh, hopefully tackle uh, a couple of big descents that I've been looking at for six years. And I think uh, things might be lining up, but you never know until you're there. So I'm going to go home and, uh, yeah, pay my dues and be humble and uh, and hopefully be able to get it done. In the meantime, you know, the mountains decide. And then on another personal project, because you were mentioning so much philosophy throughout our talk, because uh, selfishly, I think I needed to. I, I'm taking a jab at writing a book as well. So I'm taking my I'm taking my time. I'm not putting a, a hard date on when it has to be done because it has to be done right. But I'm uh I'm putting all these 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 thoughts and introspection into um into a uh into some kind of a I don't know if I can call it a memoir yet because I'm only 37 but I guess yeah a, a reflection on what has happened and where I'm going from there and what what triggered it to hopefully uh share what I've been able to digest with others to inspire them to live by their own standards as well. I love it. I love it. Guys, thank you for the film. It's really remarkable. And uh, again, I see a lot of these things. And so I feel like I'm in a decent position to weigh in on that. The film drops June 4th. Where's the best spot for people to go find the film? Yes. So if you get the chance, I highly encourage people to see it in theaters if you're, you know, vaccinated and feel safe. But um, for a full list of theaters it's screening in, our website, superfrenchymovie.com has a list there. And it really it works best on the big screen with the full sound treatment. Like it's just larger than life, you know? Um, but if you don't have that luxury, if it's not playing in your city or don't feel ready for theaters yet, it's on pretty much every digital platform. Uh, so, you know, Amazon and iTunes and all those, which also you can find links for that through our website as well. So again, superfrenchymovie.com has all those links. Yeah, it's super easy. Superfrenchymovie.com. You click on get tickets for the theaters or you click on watch at home you watch at home. So it's pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> hey, congratulations to both of you for this. I'd love to do this again, perhaps when we have a bit more time. And you both have a lot going on, both out in the world and I think in your heads. And so uh, I'd love to I'd love to have a, another conversation down the line. And uh, can't wait to see the book, Matthias, uh. when that's ready. <laughs> and, and Chase... <laughs> Yeah, what you're working on too. Best of luck with that and look forward to seeing this this next film of yours. Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. And I welcome a follow-up conversation any day. I've, I, I actually have a degree in religion and philosophy. So if you guys want to wax poetic, let's do it. I love it. Matthias, on the next project, keep it 50-50, right? Not 80-20, right? Okay. Actually, you did a whole TED Talk on this. You can check it out. It's called How to Stick Your Landing from a TEDx Berkeley. So I break down everything that I learned from my crash to do it right. So I'm keeping those, those rules that I've developed in my head for sure. <laughs> Perfect. Well, gentlemen, thanks so much. Yeah, until the next time we talk, take care. You see, John. Thanks so much. Thanks for a good talk. Cheers. Bye-bye. <laughs> Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Matthias and Chase for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again real soon. <laughs>